My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Benjamin Braddock. He is a uh, Twitter anonymous poster. I know this is a shocking revelation for people listening to this podcast. An anonymous writer, um, a, a beauty appreciator, a famous raw egg slonker, um, environmentalist, uh, and a human animal rights activist. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I'm very glad to have you on. Not only are you the the dissident rights favorite expert on COVID and the practical side of COVID, uh, but you're also a recently a very um, intense observer of the Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine, um, which uh, is is one situation, one historical <laughs> change that's uh, that's that's quite close to me physically, um, and is also you know a bit concerning, obviously. Uh, so I wanted to to start our conversation by addressing this before we go on to uh, the more the more um, classical uh, areas of, of graduated Ben uh, that concern health and COVID. Um, so, what is your feeling about what's going on? I don't know how broad to to um, to ask this question, but. I, I want you to kind of reassure me. Can you reassure me? <laughs> what's what's going on in Ukraine? Well, I'll reassure you in that, you know, I think for now, Russia has no intentions beyond the Ukrainian border and possibly not even beyond eastern Ukraine. With that said, in these situations, there's always danger of escalation. You know, my feeling today, it's it's actually sort of uh, a sick feeling because, uh, you know, the Ukrainian government is passing out AK-47s to civilians. They're... Uh, you know, taking men off of buses, leaving the country, I think between the ages of 18 and 64, you know, putting a rifle in their hands and telling them, you know, go kill some Russians. And, you know, of course, they're not uniformed. So uh, they're not likely to be treated as normal combatants by the Russians, but as partisans, which, uh, you know, tend to be summarily executed rather than taken as prisoner of war or afforded the normal Geneva conventions. And, you know, also I saw a video from earlier in Grozny where, uh, you know, large number of Chechen militiamen are being, you know, mustered up and sent to Ukraine, you know, which their fighting style is, uh, is a little more ancient, you could say. So that, that doesn't really bode well. You know, I think, Ukraine is in a is in a no win position, and that it seems as if, and you know, Putin alleges that Americans are advising them to do this, and that may be true, as if they're trying to rack up as many civilian casualties as possible during the invasion, so it'll be a PR disaster for the Russians. Um, you know, and of course, I don't like to see that. You know, I have a a lot of affection for Ukrainian people as well as for Russian people. I tend to get along well with Slavs. And, uh, 
in, in general. And, uh, well, you know, I'd say most people, but, uh, I particularly like the slops, you know? So, you know, I, I it's a bad situation because I think, um, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, the Ukrainian government should just try to, uh, you know, avoid further bloodshed and, you know, accept that, uh, NATO and the U S aren't going to help them and that they're in a position where they need to play ball with the Russians you know, declare themselves as a neutral country, abandon NATO aspirations, and, you know, hope to preserve uh, some semblance of, you know, normal sovereignty within the Russian sphere. But there's a report yesterday by NBC News that the American intelligence community has presented an option to Biden to carry out catastrophic cyber attacks against Russia itself. Now, Russia has been a leader in the field of cyber warfare. And so they're aware of you know, just what damage it can inflict. And I think they've taken a lot of steps to protect themselves against this sort of thing. They're, they're much better than the Western militaries when it comes to at least thinking about, you know, emerging technology and how that could be used in modern warfare. So including in uh, bioweapons, you know, since I think around 2007, uh, Russia doesn't allow you to do like a 23andMe type DNA test if it involves the DNA sample being sent overseas because they've understood the risk of a foreign government being able to catalog DNA samples of a population in designing, you know, a race-specific bioweapon, which has been, you know, kind of the, uh, the cutting edge of bioweapons research. It's been to try to figure out how do we create bioweapons that uh, don't affect our own population? Starting with, uh, I think, Israel in the 90s and then moving into, of course, the U.S. has looked at it. Very hard to do in the U.S., though, because our population is so mixed. But China has certainly been doing it. And China has been collecting the, the DNA information of uh, Americans who have these ancestry tests done. Very vast stockpile. Because the Chinese government actually subsidizes the cost of sequencing the genome on these tests. You know, we can get it done here for about $100, which is less than what it actually takes to run it in the lab. So all of these countries send the samples to China where they're sequenced and then results uploaded and sent back over here. But of course, a, uh, a copy is kept for their own purposes. And that, that's a part of, uh, major part of the PLA strategy. You know, unrestricted warfare is uh, something that's been, you know, I think since the late 90s has been taught in most Chinese universities. And so they're, they're thinking a lot about bioweapons and this sort of thing. So, you know, they have a lot of interest in collecting this information as part of that. You know, it could be done as a sort of Samson option, right? If your country gets overrun by invaders, you release some horrible virus, but the virus doesn't significantly you know, affect people of Han ancestry, right? That would be uh, China's goal for it. So, yeah, so, you know, Russia has been thinking about these novel technologies. And, of course, like I said, they've been a leader in uh, using cyber warfare. So if the U.S. carries out a cyber attack against Russia, it would almost certainly result in Russia retaliating with their own cyber weapons, and that would be, I think, truly catastrophic to the United States because our infrastructure is not protected against this at all. I mean, there was a last year, last summer, there was a week that I couldn't buy gasoline because uh, hackers had shut down a pipeline in the eastern United States. And 
you know, the guys who knew how to, to run those ship, those fuel shipments manually had mostly retired. You know, we lost the knowledge of how to do it analog. And so, you know, when the digital system was compromised, they just had no way to move this. So that would then, you know, you're talking against, uh, you're talking the electric grid could go down, pipelines could shut down, hospitals could shut down. So this would, it would actually, a cyber attack would actually inflict, I think, a pretty significant degree of civilian casualties in the U.S. And then that, what that would do with the population, I mean, that would be almost a second Pearl Harbor, which would then, you know, create all this furor and, you know, could result in public support for actual kinetic action against the Russian Federation, which could then escalate into some sort of nuclear conflict. So that's the thing, Um, you know, events take on their own logic and, you know, we're strapped to the top of them. You know, it's like riding a bull at a rodeo, right? You don't really control the bull. That's how uh, I think governments are with some of these events and these things spin out of control. You know, World War One was uh, unintentional. World War Two was unintentional. You know, when you actually look at what happened uh, when these, you know, events kicked off, you know, you can't find any leaders on either side who, you know, were wanting this to happen. It was never a desired outcome. You know, now in our sort of childish conception, popular conception of World War II, you know, we think that the attack on Poland was totally planned and totally, you know, they were just all ready for it and all of this. But uh, there's a book by a British historian. It's very good. It's called uh, The Origins of the Second World War. His name was uh, A.J.P. Taylor. This used to be a pretty standard textbook for teaching the history of World War II up until about the 70s. And, you know, now the guy's work has been practically memory hold. But in it, he, you know, he showed that the Germans were, you know, five years away from actually wanting to take, you know, any sort of real permanent aggressive military action, you know, like as an occupying force, because they just, they had not rearmed themselves after, you know, the disarmament of the uh, 20s and 30s under the Treaty of Versailles. They hadn't rearmed themselves to the degree that the military would have felt comfortable actually, you know, attempting to invade countries. And, you know, the, the Germans were totally surprised that, uh, well, first of all, that the, the Poles didn't come to the negotiation table. They wouldn't have any diplomatic contact over the Danzig question until maybe 24 hours before the invasion even started. I believe the Polish ambassador finally went to talk to the Germans in Berlin. And even then they had intercepted a phone call where he had talked to the British about, you know, how they were just going to stall. Right. So the when he finally did show up, the Germans knew that he didn't have the authority from his own government to actually negotiate on any of these questions. And, you know, so they ignored him, of course. So that was the first surprise. They thought that they were going to, they thought that the Poles were going to fall just as the Czechs did, you know, that they, they would just cave to the pressure and agree to, you know, having this territory carved up. And the second surprise was that the British actually declared war. It goes after the Munich conference, you know, Hitler assumed that he had Chamberlain's number and that, you know, the British would never actually go through with the war, you know, that they would just throw that alliance aside with the Poles as they had with the Czechs. Uh, so when that actually happened, that was a surprise and, you know, it was, it was unintended. So, you know, even in, even in our narrative of, you know, the plan for world domination, 
you know, even if that had been true, uh, it still started, you know, at least five years before, you know, the Germans had actually uh, even contemplated it, if they had contemplated it. So that's, you know, that's the big danger here, I think. I don't think anyone wants uh, this to spin into a, a much larger war, but the potential, you know, is there as uh, as sides act and react and then also misread the other's intentions. Yeah, and there's this whole um, kind of narrative layer um, that's also accelerated, you know, things that existed in kind of an incipient form, you know, radio communication and, you know, kind of mini mass media uh, in in the First and Second World War. Uh, But it's really nothing compared to the Internet and how um, how fast we can find who are the Nazis and who are the Jews in every situation and um, weaponize that and in uh, animating the, the different populations and who, you know, taking sides and, and pushing the narratives on, on, um, yeah, in, in either direction. So, um, it was, I think it was quite masterful that, uh, that, uh, Putin said that he was, uh, attempting a denazification of Ukraine. Um, Well, you know, I've, I've also seen some, uh, some Americans, you know, uh, use the sort of, uh, racial narrative that we have here to try to explain what they're seeing. You know, there's this one tweet out now. Yeah, you know, to comic effect. Really, this is a function of white privilege. Because if Putin had been, a, you know, a non-white president, uh, the West would have never tolerated this aggression against Ukraine. You know, so the reason that the U.S. and NATO are standing by, it has nothing to do with Russia having nuclear weapons uh, and, you know, maybe be, maybe being willing to use them. Uh, it's because Vladimir Putin is white, so his his privilege means he gets to attack Ukraine. You know, also a white country. And then there was there was another tweet. Um, this one was a classic for the archives, saying that this was like the country version of watching George Floyd being um, smothered by a police officer. You know, just forced to sit <laughs> by helplessly. Uh, you know, and others being uh, the actress Anna Lynn McCord did this slam poetry bit about how she wished that she was uh had been old enough to be vladimir putin's mother because she would have you know nurtured him and shown him love and all of this you know as if as if the problem was that you know putin wasn't loved enough as a child instead of uh as one uh poster put it uh you know seeing his country raped by the west all throughout the 90s yeah, exactly. It's it's always interesting how um, you know to um, to to square their worldview with the fact that you know even on the face of it, obviously this man is, is Hitler from from what the narrative is pushing on them. Um, he is acting erratically. He's acting in, in an you know absolutely crazy way. Why why would someone do that? Uh, but they kind of have to ram it into this kind of psychodrama where uh, he. He had to be neglected I, as a child. I saw, I saw her so, one know, woman. She, of course, had a master's in public health in her bio, uh, saying that uh, Putin might be suffering from long COVID because there was a rumored, uh, it was rumored oh. that he had COVID last <laughs> October, and so it's the brain fog and the you know neurological issues from long COVID that are, is causing him to behave erratically. Uh, you know, there might be a case to be made though that. Uh, the COVID measures of themselves, him being pretty strictly quarantined to avoid getting it, 
may have isolated him some from his normal political circles. And so he's acting more independently now, but yeah, I, I don't know. That's uh, uh, speculation, but yeah, could make sense. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the bigger takes, I think, and one that does make a little bit of sense to me is that um, this is kind of in, in the wake of Afghanistan, like the, you know, it, it could not be covered up. The disaster, the level of of um, just retreating with your with your tail bent, you know, uh, behind your legs, uh, that 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 happened in Afghanistan. Um, do you do you buy that narrative that this was essentially them observing the West as being weak and saying, okay, there's nothing actually is going to happen if we do this move? Oh yeah, I think I think he smelled blood in the water. You know, I think that with Trump. Trump was a very uh, sort of chaotic personality, but that tended to make other world leaders act more conservatively because Trump was unpredictable. You didn't, you know, you, you had a, a guess as to what he would do, but, you know, he had a temper. And so, you know, there was always some chance that if you pissed him off, he might launch the missiles. You know, and he had told Putin personally, he said, you know, if you mess with Ukraine while I'm president, I'll bomb Moscow. And he told Xi the same for Taiwan. And when he told Xi that, that was the visit that uh, he carried out the airstrikes on uh, Syria, or the missile strikes, while they were having dessert at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> she sort of leaned over and was like, yeah, by the way, I just uh, you know shot these missiles off at the Syrian airfield. So yeah, him being sort of unpredictable, you had to be more careful when maneuvering around someone like that. Now, Biden is incredibly predictable. And so, you know, the Russians knew exactly what they could get away with with him. And after Afghanistan, I think they smelled blood in the water and, uh, you know, calculated correctly that, you know, they had the latitude to carry out this operation in Ukraine and be met with little more than, you know, strongly worded statements from, from the West. I mean, you know, they're not even willing to do sanctions on energy, right? They give these broad carve-outs on the sanctions. Um, you know, they're not willing to uh, seize the yachts of uh, oligarchs. Uh, you know, the, the West understands, I think, uh, just how economically damaging it would be to go, you know, full, uh, to do a full sort of sanctions blockade like we would for North, North Korea or Cuba. Uh, you know, against Russia because they supply a huge amount of energy. Uh, and additionally, they supply a huge amount of wheat. And, you know, they make up over 50% of Egypt's wheat exports. And, you know, all across the Middle East and North Africa, Russians really are responsible for a lot of the food supply. So if that gets cut off, you're looking at, you know, possibly Arab Spring 2.0 or another refugee wave headed to Europe. You know, there's a lot that could go wrong. So, you know, Russia is kind of indispensable to the global economy. And so, you know, they have the ability to do this and and not really uh, trigger the sanctions. Unless, you know, unless the Washington foreign policy blob can really get people worked up into a lather. But if that happens, then you're, you're also looking at a situation where, you know, the U.S. might be seeing, uh, you know, the price of gas double and, you know, all the goods that are transported with uh, tractor trailers uh, also becoming more expensive, you know, just 
energy prices get tacked onto everything here. And with the inflation that we're already experiencing, that would really uh, put us into almost revolutionary territory in terms of the elections this fall. Already, we're looking at uh, 60 to 70 House Democrats losing their seats and you know, a massive Republican majority coming in. But if the and that's now, uh, or you know, as of a week ago, right before all of this, but if this crisis makes things much worse, then you know, you could see really a historic route of the Democrats. And so I think, uh, you know, that's what they're balancing a lot of the stuff against. I think they would they would love to go against Russia to any degree they think possible, but it's just the political calculus of doing this. Now. And, I, you know, that might be why, uh, you know, Russia chose to do this at this time. You know, with the midterm elections coming up, it's really cut down on the leverage that the uh, political class has to you know, involve America in, in a conflict that would, you know, have significant cost to uh, the American economy. Yeah, I think people un- underestimate how um, how important the um, the strength of the the American Empire was here in Eastern Europe. Like slowly, in the last I don't know five, six, seven years. People kind of have lost hope with uh, with the U.S. Obviously, for for obvious reasons, um, but it was like a, a an incredible stabilizing factor. And you know, Russia Russia is always looming here. And obviously, um, you know, the dissident right. There's all sorts of opinions on Russia. You know, Putin. I think you know, I agree. Putin's base in in many ways, but he's still kind of uh, a um, kind of a, a dark eminence here in, in Eastern Europe because people fear Russia, and they for good reason fear Russia because. Um, you know, even my family has stories of the Red Army just raping and pillaging their way through Europe. And, you know, Russia has no profound allegiance to these uh, to these little satellite states on the margin. These these are kind of uh, they're the killing fields of Europe for, for a good reason. So, um, yes, people would prefer that Russia stays stays as far away from them as possible. So it's, um, you know, it's 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 in a way, you know. Part of part of the reason why I decry what's going on in the West and the, the the rapid decline of the American Empire so much is because there are bad things in the world, and really the U.S. was a beacon for something else um, at at the time that it believed in itself, and it, it still had um, you know represented these values on an international stage. Uh, the fact that it doesn't anymore, um, yeah, leaves leaves this vacuum open for for forces that are not necessarily very good, even if they might be based in some narrow sense. Yeah, I think they're, you know, I think Putin would be considered based if you're Russian, right? But, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't think that he's going to distinguish, you know, if they, if they carried out an invasion of the United States, I don't think the Russian army would distinguish whether or not I was one of the good Americans or the bad Americans. I think we're all dogs to them. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just what it boils down to. He's good for his country, possibly, but, um, you know, if you're outside of that, um, you know, I'm a filthy Protestant, too. So <laughs> somebody tweeted at me, uh, I don't know, like a week ago, I posted a picture of a Canadian past or a video of a Canadian pastor being arrested for going to have a church service at a protest. There's a, a comment that was left that was uh, in Russian and it was saying that, uh well, well, he's a Protestant. They all belong in mass graves. <laughs> and it's like, oh, there's, 
there's a uh, Christian ecumenicalism for you. you know? <laughs> yeah, not not from the Orthodox. No, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a strange one, especially if if you know if you're the kind of person who's inclined to um, agree that nationalism has a place in the world and it's it's a good thing. Um, national imperialism or you know nation states expanding beyond their their preserve is a, is a problem that uh that that starts to rear its head especially with a with an empire like russia which which has certain claims over these territories i mean less so about romania and um that's also kind of you know maybe some people wonder why why am i am asking you that you know you're so far away about it happened you know what's happening out in my backyard but essentially the the problem with information about this is that if you you know, I can read Romanian media, you know, I'm, I'm going to the source. No one has on the ground reporters. There are no reporters from Romania going there and, and asking people what's going on. Everyone's getting their news from Reuters. And then I'm getting a, a badly translated, uh, I don't know, press release from Reuters France uh, a day later, um, you know, compared to all of the delicious sources that anonymous Twitter manages to manages to extract out of the internet and uh, deliver with, with lightning speed. So um, yeah, the, the, probably the, the biggest experts on what's going on are somewhere very far away just because yeah, all the information is somewhere on the internet and you have to kind of be the kind of person who knows how to get it uh, rather than, you know, just be coincidentally here in uh, the armpit of Europe waiting, waiting for the Russians to knock on your door. Yeah. Uh I will say the open source Intel community has been, uh, has been pretty solid on this America, at least, uh, you know, there's, there still is some, it's not CNN of the early nineties, but there still is some, uh, large media organizations that managed to have on the ground reporters. And, uh, and then you get other people too, like sort of independent journalists who will just fly over there and, um, cover things and, and actually a, a fairly large Ukrainian diaspora over here too and a Russian diaspora. So a lot of people who know, you know, they can read the sources or listen to them, you know, in their own language, translate them and post them. So yeah, that, that might be one of the perks of living in an empire. We've got uh, spies in every corner. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is one of them. I mean, I guess I guess I've uh, I'm I'm one of those spies. Though <laughs> what I'm observing is mostly on the internet as well. Nothing, nothing uh, too too interesting. Um, I'm gonna park Ukraine. I mean, it's it's a huge subject. It's just kind of starting up. Uh, this is gonna come out probably in about two weeks. So who knows what's gonna happen up until that point? Um, but your um, your domain is typically more related to health, and you've been an important voice um, across the the, the COVID um, the last two years of of whatever happened. I don't even know. It's partially you can call it a pandemic. Obviously, that's part part of it would happen. Um, but it's also a, a complete disaster from an administrative point of view, from a political point of view. Um, and I, I, I just also just wanted to ask you, like, is, is it over? Do you feel like things are, are starting to dissolve or are we bracing for impact with, with more variants and more of the security theater? And, you know, at least how, how is it on the ground in the U S you know, I'm not sure that it's, um, yeah, it, it may be over from a sort of political standpoint because I think governments are finally coming to the realization that there's really not much they can do. They're just being outmatched by this virus constantly. 
you know, as, as Kamala Harris said, uh, we never saw Omicron coming. Well, I, I wrote in a uh, article that was published last September that, you know, to brace for another dark winter because, you know, with the mass vaccinations, we have changed the evolutionary landscape, put a lot of pressure on the certain parts of the virus to mutate. And, you know, those will escape immunity. And then we're kind of back to square one. You know, we're, we're finally starting to see uh, significant amounts of reinfections with Omicron. I actually found out this morning, my aunt has uh, COVID for the third time since November, you know, vaccine and boosted and, you know, three infections in like yeah, just about as many months. So, yeah, there's there's something different. And of course, with Omicron, mm-hmm. it's it's not even Omicron because you have two types of Omicron that are circulating now, uh, BA1 and the BA2. And BA2 seems to be able to escape immunity from even BA1. So you're seeing like turnarounds, uh, you know, quick reinfections. Whereas before all of this, people who were infected with alpha, um, it could be in the same house with you if you had Delta, you know, a year later, unvaccinated and wouldn't get sick. So there was, you know, very strong immunity. And, you know, now I, I, I really don't know what's going on with that. You know, there are a variety of hypotheses, though. Um, one is that your T cells can become exhausted by constant exposure to the spike protein. So combination of natural infections and vaccinations and boosters can just over time uh, degrade your, you know, immune system's capability to fight this off. So, you know, in that sense, uh, if that's the case, I don't think we're over this from a uh, actual virus standpoint. You know, now, I think there's a good chance the governments just try to, uh, you know, start hiding the body counts. And, uh, you know, they're already taking moves to, you know, not report daily deaths. And they've moved away from mass testing, uh, which I think is good, actually. I, I only consider, you know, symptomatic infections to be real you know, and other things, but there's, yeah, there's been so much, uh, there's so much confusion too. You know, the government data is not reliable really on either side. You know, I've, I've been skeptical of it for uh, a long time now. And, you know, some people will selectively use it, uh, you know, different data points from the government to support their own arguments, you know, even on, uh, you know, our side, you know, those of us who oppose lockdowns and mandates and such, um, you know, you'll see a statistic a lot that, well, you know, your chances of do- your chances of surviving are, you know, 99.98%, right? Well, that comes from CDC data that's based on positive PCR tests. And, you know, for much of the pandemic, the false positive rate for PCRs, I think it was estimated by Johns Hopkins to be around 40%. So if you're talking about, if you're calculating a, you know, odds of surviving number based on, you know, a sample size where, you know, 40% of your cases aren't even real cases, your number, uh, it, it looks much safer than it really is, right? At the same time, you know, the, uh, there were people using the, the same numbers to say that, well, look at the huge amount of cases we're having constantly and, you know, this and that. So. You know, there were an incidental number of people who had false positive PCRs who, you know, died of other causes. So, you know, there was an overcount in deaths on on one respect. But then you also had people who died a month or two later um, from blood clots because of the damage done to their vascular system by the virus. 
uh, who weren't coded as COVID deaths. So, you know, all these big numbers, we actually have no idea how many people died directly from the virus. We still don't have any really precise uh, conception of what the uh, death toll is in terms of case fatality rate, right? You know, most of your fatalities will, you know, occur in the first month, but then you'll have some that'll just be, you know, this trigger some other underlying disorder, just damages, you know, you have a lot of elderly people, they just never really fully bounce back after an infection. And, you know, we're, we're still not sure, like, what's going to be the impact of cumulative infections, right? When people get COVID two, three, four times. An analogy I used early on in this was uh, HIV basically kills no one in the initial infection, right? So that's that was the big unknown that I always had uh, with this virus is more so what's the long, long-term impacts of it. And, you know, I think it can cause, you know, some level of damage that you can kind of get through fine, you feel fully recovered and all that. But then if you get, you know, hit with either another infection, or if you inject uh, a gene therapy that causes your muscle cells to express the spike protein, you're then exposed to this uh, really nasty part of the virus that, you know, can cause blood clots, can cause heart problems, can cause neurological damage. If you're not uh, truly fully recovered at a cellular level from your first encounter with it, you know, do your odds of, uh, you know, something bad happening increase on that second encounter? You know, all of these are, you know, the big unknowns. So I hope it's over. I'm sick of it. But I've also been through several times where it looked like it was over already, right? Last May, it looked like it was over. You know, the mask mandates were lifted. You know, we basically declared victory. I think Biden, it was in a speech in like late May and, you know, so, you know, by July 4th, we'll be able to gather again and, you know, begin to go back to our lives. And, you know, by the time we got to July 4th, Delta had just arrived. And, you know, we went through, uh, you know, a few brutal months of, of that. And then that looked like that was over. And then Omicron arrived. And, you know, one one characteristic of some of these variants is when they first arrived, they do look pretty mild. You know, at first, Delta looked like a attenuated virus, right? And then, you know, it seems like a month or two into it, it seems like, oh, wow, this is actually kind of getting worse. So it's almost like the variants gain steam. So if you're going to get a new variant, you kind of want to be one of the first ones, it seems. And yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird aspects to, uh, to this virus, which, you know, I think uh, probably to be expected. Because you know, every indication to me is that this thing has been, uh, you know, engineered, um, you know, in a lab. I mean, you look at the, you look at what Peter Dejac, what his scientists, you know, he's funding this research with U.S. government money uh, in Wuhan. You look at the papers from like 2015, and you know, Ralph Barrick and Xi Jingli are talking about how, you know, well, we took this mouse coronavirus. And then we took this spike protein that we found in a bat coronavirus and we added it onto it and we fused this thing all around an HIV backbone. And, you know, now we find that Moderna had uh, patented a protein sequence that was uh, going to be used in cancer treatments. You know, they were trying to do an mRNA cancer fighting platform before. Well, this exact protein sequence has been found in SARS-CoV-2. And they patented that sequence three years before the pandemic even began. And so, you know, big question now, uh, actually, I think it was 
an interview yesterday with Maria Bartiromo. She was interviewing the CEO of Moderna asking, you know, why is this cancer gene that you patented, like, why is this in the COVID virus? And he was like, well, you know, our scientists are still trying to figure this out. <laughs> it wasn't just immediately dismissed as I expected. So it's, uh, it's kind of bizarre. And we're, you know, we're seeing a huge rise in cancer diagnoses beyond what you would expect from people just missing normal cancer treatment, cancer screenings, you know, from not going to the doctor for other issues during the pandemic. It seems to be in excess of that. Actually, uh, pancreatic cancers being, uh, you know, one of the ones that I've heard a lot of cases of, including in like people in their 20s. And the common denominator seems to be, you know, vaxxed, boosted, and some had a natural infection on top of that. So, and that, that sort of makes sense, actually, um, from what we've seen with how people's immune systems uh, respond to the spike protein, you know, when they're introduced to it several times, you know, usually by uh, vaccination, you know, the, the levels of uh, your cancer fighting cells in your immune system and a lot of these people, they go down uh, pretty sharply. So most people after the age of 30 have cancer cells in their body just your uh, immune system keeps them at bay. But if you start to overstimulate the parts of the immune system that keep it at bay, you know, you lead to this issue where you'll have a lot of aggressive cancers. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that, uh, that this would become like a, a direct problem in my family, but, but it has, and it's, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to be that person that makes like a, like, I, I draw conclusions from a data set of one and my, and my family is actually two people who've had some absolutely serious vaccine side effects. Like, I mean, what I think are vaccine side effects, but it, I mean, I don't know, just in, within days of the Moderna booster, it was just complete, like complete autoimmune disorder. And, you know, with, with no, no relief. I mean, it's been months and my mom, you know, can't sleep at night and she's like crying her way through breakfast. And it's just insane to me that, I mean, I'm sure that there was, was some way in which she could have just gotten rampant arthritis at 60 in one day in almost every joint. But I don't know. (laughs) It's, it's, I mean, that's the thing too. It's, these aren't just coincidences. Like someone gets hit by a bus after they're leaving the vaccination clinic that, you know, you can tell, um, you know, if you know what this spike protein does, um, you know, it it tracks, right. These vaccine injuries, they all are, uh, sort of what you would expect with heavy exposure to the spike protein. Yeah. I've seen, quite a few cases where people have had um, some form of arthritis after a natural infection, you know, and that's, that's the thing, the sort of rare freak things that you'll see in a COVID infection. Uh, You see these exact same things with a vaccination, but I actually see them at a higher frequency, you know, like with blood clots, Um, blood clots, you know, my mom passed away from one and she had a COVID infection, you know, pulmonary embolism, and it didn't seem to be a very severe Infection. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, you know, um, you know, in terms of like no respiratory symptoms, none of this, but just a sudden blood clot. I had a when I had COVID, I had a uh, blood clot in the end of my finger. You know, if you have certain genes or blood types, you may be more susceptible to that than than uh, others. The 
factor five is uh, one of the big ones. I think, you know, if you have this factor five gene, which is most prevalent in in, um, Scandinavia and Iran, you know, people from the Indo Aryan haplogroups, they kind of have the highest levels of, of this uh, genetic mutation. But uh, you know, when they get COVID uh, Harvard study found there's like a one in three chance that they'll have blood clots in their lungs, which is, uh, you know, really high. And, you know, that's much harder to manage than someone having kind of classic respiratory symptoms, because if you have a blood clot go to your lungs suddenly, you know, that's it. It's, um, you know, you might have 10 minutes at most, but, you know, that's no time to get medical care. Whereas if it's pneumonia, you know, you have uh, usually, you know, two weeks where you can try to treat it and and fight the battle. So, and, you know, with the clots, there's also uh, strokes and heart attacks. And, you know, before all of this, I knew of maybe uh, two cases firsthand of people I had known who had had some sort of vaccine injury. One of them being my brother who had a reaction to the MMR shot. And he had brain swelling from that. But other than that, they're just, you know, it was pretty uncommon. You know, you people weren't dropping over from the flu shot. The flu shot just, you know, <laughs> seemed to not really work, right? You just get the flu anyway. Uh, with this, it's been quite a few people I've known. Uh, one neighbor on one side of me had a stroke shortly after Johnson & Johnson. The neighbor on the other side of me, a woman, 38 years old, she went into early menopause. Like she got her second Moderna shot and she has not, you know, had a cycle since that was, uh, uh, like last spring. So, yeah. And then there's a a guy in my church, uh, young guy in the military. He came down with myocarditis after Pfizer. Uh, another guy in my church had a, uh, stroke after Moderna and it's not a very big church either in terms of congregation. So One of my dad's friends, uh, his doctor had advised him to get vaccinated shortly after having a natural infection with COVID. Uh, I think it was about two weeks after. And, you know, he had a pretty bad case of COVID, but not enough to go to the hospital. But within an hour of getting the vaccination, he went into respiratory failure. You know, he survived, thank God, but he had to be on oxygen for eight months because it just it triggered some inflammatory reaction in his lungs. That was absolutely catastrophic. You know, he has permanent lung damage now. Um, you know, I think he's off the oxygen, but he still, you know, from walking to one side of the room to the other, he'll get out of breath. So a lot of cases of, of this, just way, way more than could be, you know, waved away as coincidental. Yeah. And I, I wonder how many of these are actually in the, in the VAERS data. Like there's... I- very, very few. Um, FDA did a study back, I think around 2011, and they they estimated that maybe one to three percent of actual vaccine injury cases were actually reported to VAERS. Because, you know, the media says that, well, anyone can su- submit a report to VAERS. That's not really true. Like to, to go through the whole system and fill this stuff out, you really have to be a clinician. And it's a cumbersome pro- process. And for much of the past year and a half, VAERS is uncooperative. It has random sort of outages or you click submit on a form or something and it doesn't actually submit the report. It just, you know, the screen does nothing. It's just this piece of junk, you know, government IT project that was never built to handle the volume of reports that it's getting. So it's 
constantly overloaded. And, you know, most clinicians, they have, they really don't have the time. You know, it, it can take 30 to 45 minutes to submit one report. Right. And, you know, that's, you could see, uh, you know, with an average FaceTime with patient rate of, you know, maybe 10 minutes per patient, per, per patient, you could see four and a half patients in that, uh, period of time. And it's, you know, it's a hassle to use the software. So yeah, it's, it's a very small percent that I think actually get reported. And a lot of them too, you know, will just, I've heard of a lot of cases that it's very clear that there was some sort of, you know, that there, that it was a vaccine side effect and, you know, their doctors just wouldn't really acknowledge that, you know, like, okay, well, yes, your 17 year old son has myocarditis and yes, it came shortly after the second dose of Pfizer, but you know, this could be coincidental. You know, sometimes this happens spontaneously. It really doesn't happen. It's like a one out of a hundred thousand, um, you know, rate. And so it's, it's being, um, underestimated big time. But even then there's a, there's a lot of VARES reports. I mean, just using VARES data, uh, Israeli researchers did a study and found that it was about the rate of myocarditis in young men was about 188 times that of the background rate. And then of course you can have these subclinical cases where you can have, you can meet two or three of the diagnostic criteria for myocarditis, but if you don't meet them all, it doesn't, meet the standard for what's considered a case of myocarditis. And then you have people who, you know, they just have, uh, you know, a level of heart inflammation that doesn't, you know, their troponins don't meet the benchmark or whatever, but that, you know, they're still, they're clearly having some heart issues. They can feel it, yeah. but they're just not meeting the, the benchmarks on the labs to, to be considered and recorded. Yeah, that's actually what what happened. I mean, to to my husband actually, because we we have these aura rings and um, they record, you know, whatever temperature, background, all sorts of markers. Now also a heart rate, and you know, it's absolutely you can tell when when the the vaccine happened because it was just his temperature was elevated. It's, it's been elevated since then. Like every week or so, he has a day of fever, and then then maybe it's 10 days of, you know, lower temperature, but then another fever spike and the whole, you know, we've had, we've had them for years now. We've got them when, when they came out and then the whole timeline behind that, he's never had a fever. And then since then he has them every two weeks and he feels like shit also. Who knows what, what exactly what like processes are still happening, but you know, something, um, he's obviously, he's not going to go to the hospital or like I don't go to, to get checked out, but it's, um, yeah, there's something's definitely going on and, uh, yeah, that's not going to be recorded anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when it's something like that, where you have a fever, like once a week or, you know, you have heart palpitations two or three times a day, you know, a lot of times that's not going to show up while you're in office, right? So your EKG will look totally normal. And then you'll just have like, uh, you know, racing heart later that night when you're back from the doctor's office. So, I've talked to so many people who've used, you know, either the Aura Rings or some of the Fitbit type trackers or Garmin watches that have, you know, shown their heart rates, you know, before and after. And you, know, you see these resting heart rates that are 30 to 40 beats above uh, what they had been before the vaccination. And, you know, this was, this was one of those things where, you know, when they 
reports first started kind of coming out about it, they were like, well, there's this like association, but we don't, we can't say that it's actually a, you know, causative it's, it's correlated, but you know, like we don't know why this would be, you know, there was uh, in summer of 2020, there were already papers coming out saying that the spike protein disrupts the functioning of the cells in the heart. You know, so this wasn't, this was, something and I I got account strikes for this back in 2020. I was saying that uh, this is a really bad vaccine platform or a vaccine design that uh, warp speed is going ahead with. You know, if if there's anyone that I thought would have a chance of working, it would be like a whole inactivated virus like Valneva, where they, you know, they grow the virus, they kill it, they inject it with an adjuvant, kind of a traditional vaccine platform. But the medical establishment, or I should say the biotech establishment with, you know, Fauci as being like the Robert Moses who directs the money for all these projects. Um, they were talking back in like 2014, 2015 about how they needed essentially a, a crisis, like a new flu or other kind of pandemic that would really motivate the public to get over their qualms about a new technology like mRNA you know, something scary enough to where we could actually normalize mRNA and vaccines. You know, they're just up there, you know, talking about it at a conference. Uh, pretty really? crazy to, to look back. At. And that, that's, that's when you see stuff like that, it's like, you know, can you blame anyone for, uh, for thinking that this is all one vast conspiracy? Yeah. You know, because there, there are enough, uh, statements and bits of evidence from uh you know from before all of this to where it does look very intentional yeah, i mean the fact that no one's speaking about the the oranges of the virus anymore after it's been pretty much proven conclusively that it's it's a lab leak at least it's just nuts well you know when so when it comes to that there's there's a researcher dan sorotkin he was the first one to actually uh him and his dad put put out a paper the first one to actually posit that this wasn't of natural origin. This was back in January of 2020. And he runs a really good substack called uh, Harvard to the Big House. You know, his hypothesis here is that it's it's not a it's not actually a lab leak. It wasn't like a lab worker got infected from a bat or something. That's a sort of limited hangout excuse. His hypothesis is that it was a live attenuated vaccine that was in testing and went horribly wrong and essentially started de-attenuating back to its full strength as the modified SARS virus uh, that it originally was. And one of his pieces of evidence for it, which I find uh, you know, really compelling, is that the only institution in the world that was working on a live attenuated viral vaccine for SARS was University of North Carolina, uh, Ralph Barrick's group. And he was working very closely with the researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And he, because the researchers at Wuhan, the Chinese researchers, they were able to go and find these viral samples from bats in caves around China, but they weren't able to actually culture them in the lab. They couldn't keep them alive. Well, Barrick had the technology to where he could actually resurrect dead viruses and genetically modify them you know, match them with other viruses, you know, pieces of this and that to create a uh, Frankenstein's monster. And, you know, given that, you know, his, and he was tied into the research of like the only live SARS vaccine 
And it was also very involved in what was going on in the lab at Wuhan. And understanding, you know, the level of technical espionage that's been going on, right, where China has sent researchers to the West to essentially steal our technology. I think there's a you know, very plausible case to be made that uh, that design that the UNC was working on was uh, taken and used by the uh, Chinese military to attempt to create a SARS vaccine for their troops and that it uh, just de-attenuated and got out. Because uh, one thing is really clear, the spread of the virus did not start in you know, November of 2020 or December of 2020 or 2019, you know, according to the timeline, right? It didn't start at the Wuhan seafood market. In May of 2019, the purchases of PCR testing equipment in Hubei province started to really ramp up. And, you know, Throughout 2019, there were just huge amounts of purchases purchases made far above that of any previous year for PCR testing equipment and by institutions that had really not bought any large numbers of this before. So it was clear that, you know, some virus was already out in spring of 2019 in China and, you know, was spreading uh, enough to where, you know, people noticed and were trying to do surveillance of it but really, you know, not telling the World Health Organization, or at least none of that going public. And that's what you would expect in a, a virus that's deattenuating. It gradually starts to pick up strength as it passes from host to host, and it works from its weak form back to its original, more pathogenic form, you know, culminating in it um, getting pretty hot around uh, October or November uh, in Wuhan, but there were, you know, there were, it was spreading in Italy, actually, as early as September of 2019, there was a study done on lung cancer patients in Northern Italy, where they had taken samples of lung tissue. Um, of course they were cataloged and they went back later and tested them for COVID and they found quite a few positive samples. So, you know, the official timeline and narrative of all this, it's, it's totally at odds with what the evidence actually shows that, you know, there was waste, this was found in wastewater and uh, Spain and Milan and, you know, these other cases. So there were quite a few cases outside of China before that, but they hadn't really gotten to the point where they were uh, going to be that noticeable. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned in one of your articles that it was also found in in, in deer, in like, like in, in an incredible percentage of deer. Now in white-tailed deer at a very high level, which is, you know, it's a the zero COVID is now definitely not going to be a thing because there's an animal reservoir in North America. So it can't be wiped out. Um, and it's concerning because, you know, uh, what if it mutates in deer and then makes it way back into the human population in some worse form you know it's not a not a good thing to have it's uh but the where how it made its way into deer was probably not through human to deer contact but actually because uh, the virus can survive in sewage for quite some time and you know in a lot of american states human sewage is used as fertilizer on fields there's a specific season typically that it's allowed to be used. You spray it on in the fall after your summer crops have, have been grown so that it can lay on the fields for, you know, enough months that you would expect most bacteria and viruses to die out by the time planting season arrives the following year. 
So one of the biggest indicators was that the, the deer that are testing positive, you know, back around like August and September of last year, it was for the old variant, not for Delta. And so they would have probably picked it up the previous fall. And in the counties where there's the highest amount of uh, corn being grown in the U.S., uh, last fall after like toward the end of the season where they spray the manure on the fields, uh, a lot of those counties had pretty severe COVID outbreaks among humans even. So you can think of it almost as like a cloud or miasma coming up off of fields, drifting into towns, infecting people. Because I've, I've talked to a number of people throughout the pandemic who locked down pretty hard. They had no social contact, you know, outside their home. It was, it was not, you know, not really human to human, but they ended up contracting the virus anyway. So I think that, you know, the virus is a lot more durable than we would normally expect. You know, you would think that it would just uh, die after a few minutes lingering in the air. Uh, some studies have been done that have shown that the shell of the virus is actually much harder. And so this could just persist, you know, in the air for a much longer period of time than say, you know, the flu or cold viruses. But also, you know, when you spray that manure on the fields, it's going to end up in the uh, water and, you know, deer drink the water and they're, you know, wandering around on the fields. So yeah, you have a situation now where I think it's something like 40% of the deer herd has antibodies to COVID and probably more by the, by now. I've seen a couple of videos actually of deer with COVID. It's a uh, pretty, pretty wild, um, you know, when they're in respiratory distress and they're like, so out of it, you know, a human can like walk up to them and they don't really notice, you know, that anyone's around. They're just like sitting there panting, you know, it's a, it's a real tragedy. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like um, like there's not really any way around it. Like this virus uh, is a fixture now, and all of its subsequent variants. Um, and that kind of leads me to to my next point: uh, health in general. Uh, you also speak about this. Um, I mean, one of the major risk factors for COVID is um, is obesity, uh, and that's definitely something that. Um, obviously, the U.S. is associated with obesity uh, famously, but it's also something that's trickling down through the empire to the fringes as well. Like I remember because um, I've you know moved now, it's probably about two years since I moved back to my hometown, um, little, little like Hicksville, Romania place. Um, and there are people like people like in, um, you know, the the humans of Walmart type size here now which is, there was no such thing. Maybe some person with like a completely weird genetic disorder would, would have had that problem, you know, to be extremely obese. But now, you know, there's definitely no way that you're going to take a, a walk outside longer than 10 minutes without encountering someone who's barely moving. Um, so it's, it's, it's coming to a, to a place near you, <laughs> wherever you are. Uh, so I, I wonder, what do you think are, um, are the causes of this? And is there any way for a, um, a nice person listening to this podcast to, uh, to, to take measures to avoid that, that destiny? Like how, what, what causes it and how, how can one circumvent it? Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say even beyond it, as far as risk factors go, you know, it is observed, uh, like the worst severity among people who are, or obese, but I think there's a lot of people who don't feel like they fit that category. And, uh, you know, they actually do. Uh, it's not so much of, you know, 
are you 400 pounds? Uh, it's more of, do you have the root metabolic dysfunction that tends to lead to obesity? So some people, they can be skinny fat, right? And they feel like, okay, I've just got a little extra paunch. And that can be enough to um, put their system, you know, in the condition to where they would be vulnerable to, uh, you know, infection, not just getting infected, but, you know, having pretty severe symptoms, this sort of constant inflamed state. You know, I think a lot of that has come from the, the use of industrial seed oils you know, since the post-war period, really since the 1920s when they started uh, figuring out how to make cotton seed into uh, a lard substitute as Crisco. And the issue is, you know, when you have something like olive oil, you know, sort of natural vegetarian fat, you'll find that, you know, olive oil that's properly done, it has, you know, vitamin A and vitamin E along with it right? Nature's way of stabilizing the fats, you know, whether they be in nuts or olives or whatever, is to, uh, you know, include antioxidant compounds with them. It's not just the vitamins like vitamin E and vitamin A, but also, you know, the polyphenols, the flavonoids, you know, all of these different compounds that prevent oxidation. And you know, that's important because if a fat is oxidized, it becomes chemically unstable means when your body makes cholesterol from that, a lot of times it actually degrades the outer protein, protein membrane of the cholesterol particle. That protein membrane has these enzymes on it that signal to the cells, you know, to take it up. They're almost like uh, postage stamps. And so when you have a fat that easily oxidizes, it destroys those enzymes or degrades them. And so it you really end up with a disconnect uh, where the problem isn't that you have cholesterol. Like cholesterol is a building block to life. It's what you make your sex steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen out of, you know, your cell membranes. It's, it's incredibly important. You have to have it. So you, you need cholesterol, but you need the cholesterol to be able to get to your cells. And so when you, you know, put the wrong kind of fat into your body, fats that are prone to oxidation, the cholesterol doesn't end up making it to your cells. It's just a zombie that circulates through your vascular system until it finally just disintegrates and ends up on the wall of the cell. Then that fat that's oxidized, it's sort of an irritant to the lining of your vascular system. And it, you know, it, it leads to, uh, you know, the scarring of the arteries and the other things you see in heart disease. And then eventually to, you know, blood clots that lead to heart attacks and strokes. So that's an important one, but, you know, it takes a long time to get these uh, fats out of your system once they're stored in it. I think uh, it's been estimated to take about four years from when you, you know, really eliminate these from your diet to when they're, you know, fully out of your body. And these seed oils, so this would be, like you said, cottonseed, um, can canola oil and... Canola oil, soybean oil. Some seed oils, actually, if, if they're, you know, the, of the more artisanal variety, um, you know, they're like cold pressed and, you know, small batch and this sort of thing. Some of them actually retain enough antioxidants uh, to, you know, keep the fat from uh, oxidizing to a significant degree. So my, you know, my complaint is more of with uh, the really industrial ones like canola oil, which, you know, was used originally it was used for years just as engine lubricant um 
and you know then later um you know adopted into a uh a fat substitute because it's easy to make large quantities of this to feed a mass population is there a, a way to make rapeseed oil or like canola oil art- artisanally or is this the, the kind of seed that needs to be crushed under no, it's the kind of seed that it, it you know, it doesn't produce these plants. They don't produce a lot of antioxidants along with them. Uh, you know, it's it's very intense process to to try to make fat out of these. Or, you know, or like corn oil. You know, corn is very starchy. It's it's not an oily thing that you can just press in a vat and you're going to get you know fat on top. Um, it's very similar, actually, to the process of making plastic. You just skip the final stages of where you harden it. But, uh, you know, it'll harden inside your body, so uh, you can't skip that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so, sorry for interrupting you. This is like, you know, one of these things that it's on my mind permanently because, you know, I'm, I've just become a mom fairly recently and you see this in every formula. There is no formula on earth. And I have checked this. It does not have a form of vegetable oil, which includes canola oil in it. There's some, some of them have coconut oil additionally to canola oil, but canola oil is in every formula on the planet. There was actually a startup in the U.S. that was trying to do a formula with coconut oil only. And the FDA shut them down and made them add canola oil to it because they define omega-6s as being uh, essential fatty acids. And they only define it because, um, you, you know, your body doesn't make these fats. So they say you have to get them from your, from your diet instead of questioning why your body doesn't make these fats. You know, like your body will make saturated fat. It'll make monounsaturated fat. It won't make polyunsaturated fat. (laughs) So you know, typically it doesn't, it doesn't like to, there's some instances where, it may, but, and that, you know, that speaks to kind of the issues. Uh, the omega sixes, they're the long chain fats. And so they have more, uh, there's more areas on them chemically where an oxygen molecule can attach and oxidize the fat. Uh, so something like, you know, olive oil, it's it only has one place on the chain where an oxygen molecule could attach. So it could oxidize, but with an antioxidant in its presence, it's probably not going to oxidize. And then a saturated fat, you know, the chain is so short that it's highly unlikely to oxidize. So, you know, there's there was this big push to uh, scare Americans by saying, you know, if you, you, you know, doctors actually, there are doctors out there who still tell people like you can't eat more than two egg yolks a day. You know, if you're going to eat more eggs than that, you have to take the yolks out. Because you know you're going to get heart disease and die, you know it's just insane. And where the, where this actually started was, um, you know, when inflation was going on during the Vietnam War, Lyndon B. Johnson told his uh, USDA director to try to do something to get Americans to stop eating so much of these foods that the prices were going up on. So things like eggs and milk. Essentially, if we lowered the demand, we could lower the price and hide the inflation. And yeah, it's just, we're still living with the consequences of that. And the consequences of that are, you know, six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease of some sort, and four in 10 Americans have two or more chronic diseases of some sort. And so, you know, it's really a, a, a population of sick people by and large. And, you know, a lot of it was just actually a direct result of the medical establishment parroting this propaganda instead of people eating the kind of things that their grandparents ate. 
you know, which led to much longer lifespans. You, you still have old people around who lived through the Great Depression who are, you know, like 96 years old and still, you know, up and around cooking for themselves, taking care of themselves. They're in better shape than the boomer seniors uh, in a lot of cases. You know, if they had kind of just stuck to their, uh, the old patterns, right? Uh, you know, if they hadn't adopted the, the fancy new technology of uh, Crisco. Yeah, there's um there's a book I saw you mention one of your articles and it's one that keeps popping up and I I just uh I just got it on my Kindle so I'm going to look into it. It's a uh, Deep Nutrition uh by Kate Shanahan. Yes. Yeah, it's, I mean it's it seems to be the book for learning how to eat <laughs> for anyone who's curious about this uh, subject, but uh I mean what what about it is so um so revolutionary? I think because she really she really gets into the science uh, of lipids. There's not many uh, nutrition books that will actually go in and explain what cholesterol is, what it's supposed to do, and how this system can become dysfunctional. And so, you know, it was kind of going off of that, and um, and actually, I'd, you know, I read that book, and then I started thinking more of like, well, actually, you know, saturated fat isn't this like scary thing that we need to limit even though we crave it you know it's like you don't have to restrict yourself from using butter right you don't have to use margarine you can use the real stuff and i started you know kind of looking into it further and then it was like okay well this egg thing is obviously not the way to go my dad had actually told me about how because i was i had been talking to him i was like oh it's like it's it's tough being this tall because like trying to, you know, pack on extra muscle is, is a real chore. You just have to eat huge volumes of food and it just, you know, dissipates. You can't really see much. And he was telling me about how, when he was in college, um, in Florida, they had an orange tree in the backyard, him and my mom. And, you know, they were a young family and, you know, kind of, uh, being frugal wherever they could, so and I think the neighbors had uh, chickens too. So they would uh, juice the oranges during the season and you could mix that with some milk and uh, a bunch of raw eggs. And so you just had a, a quick power meal in the mornings. And so I, you know, I tried that out and I found that that's actually the old recipe for orange Julius. And it was a pretty common drink in America in like the 50s and 60s. And yeah, I noticed, I was like, wow, this is, this is great. It's like, uh, I've got a ton of energy after I do this or after I drink this and started noticing, I was like, wow, I'm, you know, gaining weight. Uh, but in a good way, it was like bulking, but without adding the fat. Um, and I just, you know, I felt a lot better. So, you know, I went further in and research and try to, you know, figure out some of the causes behind that. And so one night I, it was one of those late night tweet threads where you're just, you know, kind of unwinding before bed with some schizo posting. Um, I did this thread, you know, and I, I hashtagged it raw egg nationalism, right? It was, uh, some of it was tongue in cheek, but it was a lot of, you know, it was all grounded and things. And it was looking at, you know, with, with raw eggs, you could, you could get a lot more, right? So if you're trying to pack on muscle, you can get, you know, way more volume down than if you cook eggs, right? If you cook eggs, like, you know, I can barely get three down because it's, they're kind of sulfury and, you know, it's, that's all my stomach will take, but I can, uh, down a dozen 
you know, no problem if I uh, just blend them up raw. But I looked further into it and it was like, well, actually, there's a lot of B vitamins in the egg yolks, but B vitamins are very heat sensitive. So if you cook the eggs, you're, you know, degrading some of the nutritional content in them. And, you know, it was, it was a kind of perfect storm meme because it, a lot of other people started doing it and it kind of took off and then they were seeing really good results with it too. And no one was getting sick from salmonella. Now, you know, these are high quality eggs, uh, cause I, you know, I despise factory farms. So I, I tell people, no, you've got to get the, the good stuff from the chickens that are not being stuck into these tiny cages and all of that. Like if you, and if you go for that stuff, you know, you're just not going to get the, the same quality. You know, you need to emphasize quality in your, in your food. And yeah, people started having uh, great results. Uh, you know, a lot of bodybuilders backing on mass, but then, you know, we get some messages. Uh, one really nice one was from a older man in the UK who worked in a cabinet shop and he had to take painkillers before because his joints were hurting so bad from, you know, being on a concrete floor all day. And he was writing to let me know that he was no longer taking anything, not even ibuprofen, because his, his joints just didn't hurt anymore. And you know, part of that is uh, you are consuming so much good fat and cholesterol that uh, you're, you're kind of outweighing the uh, inflammatory fats that are in your body and maybe in the rest of your diet, you're just displacing them. And so you end up with a kind of anti-inflammatory effect and you end up with a boost in hormones because now your body has all this... Uh, raw material to convert into testosterone and you know estrogen and growth factors and all this so yeah so that was a uh that was a that was a fun time it was a fun meme and then i i think the thread got taken down because it violated like a health misinformation thing like some seed oil promoting like liberal doctor was going around trying to target you know different esoteric health <laughs> communities <laughs> at a discord set up to do mass reporting <laughs> I was basically saying, well, you know, you can't invite, you can't tell people to eat raw eggs because uh, people get salmonella, right? And, it, you know, one of the great things about the meme was it was just, it was such a clear demonstration that what the health officials say is total BS. Because here are all these people who are seeing tangible results in their health by ignoring the FDA warning labels that you shouldn't eat, you know, raw or undercooked foods and that you shouldn't eat more than you know, two eggs a day max. Uh, and, you know, people were doing like 18 and 36 eggs a day and just really up in big time. You know, it's like you see, okay, well, nothing bad happened. So we're being lied to about these things. So what else are they lying to us about? It's, it's, it's a uh, good introductory red pill. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's kind of the ethos behind uh, a lot of what the, the dissident right is doing. It's, you know, it's these little things you think, oh, you know, diet and nutrition, you know, there's a thousand diet books out there, but uh, it's very easy to skew information. It's very easy to tell, you know, just one part of the story. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really good what you're doing. And yeah, I think the, the conclusion here is slunk, slunk your eggs and also, um, yeah, avoid the seed oils, whatever has vegetable oils on it. And there ain't no vegetables in there. It's probably mostly canola. Oil. All right. Here's, here's the rest um, of the quick bullet point, um, quick bullet list for, for COVID stuff. Though. Uh, vitamin D is very important. Yeah. So okay. sunshine is good. 
And also, you know, trying to uh, maintain a kind of positive mindset. And that's really hard in today's world. But, you know, I've seen people who basically, they have so much anxiety when they get COVID about it, that it really starts to drive them down very quickly. You know, phys- you know their mental state uh, relates to their physiological state. And, and it makes sense because, you know, stress, uh, stress dampens your immune system, stress, you know, can drive up inflammation, um, all of these things. So um, that's one thing. And then I have a, uh, a pinned tweet up on my profile that links to uh, my Substack, where I put together some different preventative measures and then treatments that you can have on hand. And it's really important to have you know different supplements and medications on hand before you get COVID, uh, because it it takes sometimes days to work yourself through like, okay, well, there's this one telemed provider that will actually write me the prescription for what I need, but they may not have appointments for three days or so. So really being prepared and that, that gives you some peace of mind too. So it's like, you know, all right, I have this in my medicine cabinet. Uh, it's ready to go. And, you know, when you start taking, uh, when you start treating the virus very early on, at least within the first three days. But ideally, you start on just knowing that you have a positive contact. People typically do really well with it. And, you know, the earlier you get it, the less of a viral load there's going to be. And so the less spike protein you're going to have circulating around that can cause all of these, you know, weird issues and things down the road. So with that, I've gotten just so many messages of people saying that, you know, what, you know, it was like two days and I was, I was feeling good again and, uh, you know, no long-term symptoms. Or anything. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the, the white pill in all of this is that we actually do have a way to, to deal with this. It's not, you know, it's not like it's smallpox and we just have no idea of like any treatment that would be effective. It is something that you can treat the problem. And, you know, the vast bulk of people who do early treatment, you know, don't seem to have any severe uh, or significant long-term uh, repercussions from it. And we have to be grateful to the, the the tireless work of the of the dissident anonymous <laughs> crowd who has, like you, also worked tirelessly on this and, and uh, gathered all this data and all this information and all these like treatment avenues that really aren't you really don't hear anywhere else about this stuff. You know, maybe, maybe you hear that Joe Rogan's done some of it, but I think I have a, I have a feeling that he's also somehow adjacent to some people who've done the work in the shadows and then came out with, with a lot of that information. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty big active online research community that has, uh, you know, been ducking bands throughout this for saying things that'll be reported on CNN a year later. and you know, have to give full credit to the broader community because it's, it's been a big collaborative effort. And, you know, that's been the, uh, that's been the positive news out of this that is corrupt and incompetent and malicious as our institutions have been, you know, a lot of people have really risen to the challenge and are, are fighting through this. And there's, uh, you know, there's good doctors and nurses and researchers and just, you know, smart people who took an interest in it and, you know, didn't want to sit on the sidelines, um, who've gotten involved in this. There's you know, a lot of good human stories out of this, uh, you know, even though the whole thing has been such a tragic disaster. 
Yeah, it's a it's a big white pill, and it kind of speaks to the, the you know the good parts of the internet because it's, it's easy to get caught up in how how dark things can get, and I know information warfare and narrative fracturing and all sorts of stuff like that. But it's also the most wonderful collaborative tool in the world, and I wouldn't be here sitting you know chatting to someone like you if if there wasn't um, the internet and Twitter and the, the spaces that we travel in. So I'm, I'm really grateful to that. Um, but before I let you go, I have to ask you the question of the show. Everyone gets asked the question of the show, uh, which is, do you have a subversive thinker? Could be a writer, could be a doctor, could be whoever you think is, is relevant that you think is underrated and that people should, uh, should look into read more or just find out about. Uh, yeah. I mean, the one that would come, um, uh to me, maybe off the top of my head, although I don't know if it's quite as into such a subversive category, but uh, the novelist John Steinbeck, because, you know, his writings on uh, on human nature and, you know, what is beautiful and what is worth fighting for, I find a lot of inspiration in that. And his magnum opus, East of Eden, is, uh, I think, definitely a good read for anyone who wants to sort of meditate on uh, human nature and, you know, what uh, what about humanity is really worth fighting for. Yeah, that's lovely. I think this is a, a, an amazing recommendation. We usually get like, I don't know, um, obscure political philosophers from the 17th century. I think we've had enough of those. I think this is a really good recommendation. And I feel like there's so much that we, we could talk about. I mean, it's just scratching the surface um, because you're such a kind of a deep specialist in deep, in different areas. And I really wanted to get your greatest hits because they're so valuable to so many people, but I would really love to have you back on. Um, I think you, you mentioned in one of your articles that you were writing a book. Is there anything, uh, any update about that or, um, have you been doing some work on that? Yeah, I've been uh, working on it, uh, plugging away. We cover uh, sort of COVID's origins and, uh, you know, the way it was uh, mismanaged and mishandled. But yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of work because there's a lot of different rabbit trails you can oh, go yeah. down <laughs> and uh, trying to tie it all together. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of books that are you know being done on COVID, so probably seems like an overdone topic to start off on. But uh, for my part, it's it's more about, you know, documenting these things while I, you know, still have them uh, fairly fresh in my memory, just because I know, you know, that uh, the way that history is written is often, you know, not the way that these things actually occurred. And so trying to give my best stab at a, uh, you know, accurate and uh, less biased uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the incentives that someone else would have, someone who's, you know, obviously probably not anonymous, probably uh, has ties to different institutions. Those will probably be the people who, who write, uh, who are going to write the history of COVID uh, are completely different to, to yours. So I'm, I'm expecting something, uh, yeah, from a, a very uh, uh, unique perspective. And I, I hope that you come back on to, to discuss it once it's out. Um, I want to point people towards your subsects, uh, benjaminbraddock.substack.com, at um, graduatedben on Twitter. Is there any other place that people should check out? Um, that pretty much covers it. Cool. Yeah. And also the pin tweet. People check out the pin tweet, get your supplements, get your pills, put them on the nightstand and, and uh, relax mentally uh, because your encounter with COVID is probably looming. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> Well, thanks for having me on. I've uh, really enjoyed it.
Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it too. And like I said, I hope you come back on. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 